Well, let me invite you to open your copy of God's word to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and we'll begin in verse 35 this morning, and we may finish chapter 12 today. Uh, I say may because I'm not quite sure uh, how far the Lord will let me go today, but I'm hoping possibly to finish chapter 12 today. But uh, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 35, before I read the text, uh, this week, has been filled, the news has been filled with Penn State, Joe Paterno, Coach Sandusky, and all of the sort of scandal that has gone on there. Joe Paterno has, this week in college sports, reached a level of infamy that will never be forgotten. You'll never be able to mention uh, Joe Paterno at Penn State anymore from this point forward without connecting it to this um, child abuse scandal that has gone on um, while he's while he's been there. Now, up to this point, before this week, when all of this came out, uh, you mentioned Joe Pa, as he's uh, affectionately known there on the campus, and he had achieved a godlike status on that campus. I mean, he he was it. You know, they they chant, "We are Penn State." Really. They could chant, he is Penn State. He, he was. I mean, for 60 some odd years, he has been at Penn State. 40 something of those, he has actually been the head coach. Uh, the winningest head football coach in the NCAA. I mean, just, it just, it just reached this level of sort of deity, if you will, in the college football world. That was prior to the news coming out of Coach Sandusky raping and abusing uh, allegedly, all of those boys. It's events like these that remind us that we're all just human. And it's events like these that remind us that humans really are not to be trusted. As so I watched so much of the coverage, I, I watched so many say this and say that and people come down on different sides and some people were very harsh and some went the other way. I, I, I watched the coverage of uh, the night when Joe Paterno was fired, uh, watched the students there on the campus riot. And it struck me, it, it's only in a Genesis three world where people would riot over the firing of a football coach and remain silent over the rape of children. It's not my point here. My point that I want to show you, that I want to to point out to you this morning, is that all of us are human. And in the end, humans cannot be 100 percent trusted. That's not to say that we shouldn't look up to some people. We shouldn't have uh, heroes, if you will, that we look to. There, there are people that, that have stood the test of time and, and probably will stand the test of time. But I heard one commentator on this subject, say, it just reminds you that you can never put your confidence completely in a man because a man will always let you down. And as I heard that, I was also studying this passage that we're in this morning. And Jesus comes to this text, and for the past several sermons, we have looked at this group, members of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Herodians and others have come and they have questioned Jesus. 
And now Jesus, having put all of them to shame, answering all their questions to their befuddlement, he has silenced them all to the point where none of them wants to answer him another question. And now he does the asking. And he asks them a question about the Messiah. And there are those that say that the Messiah is only a man. And if you put those two things together, that the ESPN commentator is saying you can never put your confidence completely in a man because a man will always let you down. And you hear also those who say that Jesus, while he was a good man, he was nothing more than a man. The connection leads many to believe that even Jesus cannot be trusted. And so it's with that that we come to this text this morning. Jesus himself will challenge this very notion that the Messiah is only to be a man. Let's look at our text together. Beginning in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who walk, who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. The poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. He called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Lord, I pray, God, that you would speak through me this morning, that you would call men and women out of death into life for your glory. In Jesus name. Amen. We see in this passage this morning, we see I want to, first of all, take you to two different perspectives on the Messiah. And then I want to show you the responses to his Messiahship. The first is an incomplete Christ, an incomplete Christ. And this is where many people find themselves is having an incomplete Christ. When Jesus here looks at these in the crowd, probably many of them still members of the Sanhedrin. And he says to them, in fact, Matthew tells us that he addresses this question to the Pharisees. When he says to them, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For even David calls him Lord. How could he be his son? What Jesus is saying here is that he was pointing to the fact that they believed, yes, that he would be the son of David, but that that's all he would be, that he would simply be a human descendant of David. Where do they get this idea? Well, obviously, they get it from the Old Testament. 
Specifically, they get it from the great promise of God to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verses 12 and 13 of that, that passage say, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you. you shall come from, they shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, if he doesn't, if he doesn't add that last little bit there, I will establish your, his throne, his kingdom forever. You can make a case that he's simply talking about Solomon. Solomon built a great house for God. That when he says, when he goes on and he says, I will establish his throne or his kingdom forever, that goes beyond an earthly king. But they interpreted it that he would only be an earthly king, that he would only be a descendant of David. They pull this from passages like Psalm 89. I won't read you the entire psalm, but go look at it at lunch today. It points to the fact that there is coming a Messiah who would be from the line of David. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Many other passages led them to affirm that the Messiah would be the son or the descendant of David. See, they read passages like this from the Old Testament, and they knew that there was going to come this one who would be the Messiah, who would be this great promised king. And he would be not only from David, but they jumped from there, made the leap and made the assumption that not only would he be from David, but that he would also be like David. That he would, if you remember, like David, he would come against the enemies of Israel. You remember David coming against the Philistines? And all of David goes out to take the supplies that his father sent him to take to his brothers in the field. And David goes out there from keeping sheep and he carries cheese and bread and he takes it out there and they make fun of him. And he notices while he's there that they just happen to be cowering. They're not exactly on the battlefield. He notices that the army of the Philistines across the battlefield, they're on the other side. And while David's there and they're making fun of him, there is one that comes out from the Philistines named Goliath. Over nine feet tall and he comes out and he yells across at these children of Israel, the chosen people of God. Send me a man. Send me a man that will fight. We'll settle this thing right here, right now. No need for all of us to get dirty. I'll fight your best man. Send him to me. You remember the story. The Israelites, they cower. This guy's over nine feet tall. I'm not going. Are you going? No, I'm not going. David watches all this. And David, this little shepherd boy who was just delivering cheese and bread to his brothers. He says, who? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that thinks he can talk to the children of God this way? His brothers try to send him home. Who do you think you are, David? Just go back and keep the sheep, David. David won't let it go. David says to the king, he says to Saul, he says, 
I was out in the field when a bear would come and a lion would come and they would attack the sheep and I would, with my hands, wrestle the sheep from them and kill them. This uncircumcised Philistine is nothing but a dog. Let me at him. Saul tries to fit him in his armor and it's clumsy and David can't function this way. And so he says, just let me go the way I'm used to going. The Bible says he takes those five smooth stones and he takes that staff and his sling and he goes out into that field and Goliath shouts across and says to him, who am I that you send to me this little dog? I will cut off his head today and feed his flesh to the birds. And David, in the original trash talk of all trash talk, says, you today will be the ones that will be fed to the birds. I will cut off your head if there is a God in heaven. And David takes that stone, puts it in that sling. And this is not just a children's story. This is the truth of what God can do through one man who has surrendered to him. And he takes that stone and he hurls it. And the Bible says it sinks deep into the forehead of this giant. And he falls face down. David goes and takes this giant's sword from his sheath. And he cuts the head off of this giant. And the Philistine army runs away in fear. The army of the Lord is empowered. And they chase them and kill them. From these texts. They promised this one who would come from David. They make the leap that not only would he be from David, but he would be like David. That he would come and he would deliver them from all of their enemies. That all of these nations around them that were constantly warring with them and holding them back and holding them down, that there would come one. And he would be a great warring king and he would liberate them. See, that's all they thought he would be. All they thought he would be was this descendant, human descendant of David that would be great and warring and he would restore them to their former glory. Well, the question here in this first verse of our passage today deals with. Does Jesus fit that bill? Because, yes, they are right. While they are wrong and that's that's all he will be. God does promise that he will send one from David. So does Jesus fit that bill? Well, let's go to the original Ancestry.com in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, goes through all of this lineage We come to passages like this in Scripture, and if you're reading through the Bible, sometimes you're tempted to just pass over these names. You just gloss over them and check them off your list that you read that part of the Bible today, aren't you? But they're there for a reason. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of of David, the son of Abraham. And it goes and it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac of Jacob and Jacob of Judah, Judah of Perez to Hezron to Ram to Abinadab to Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Joram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh. Amos, 
Josiah, Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Abiud, Eliakim, Azor, Zedek, Akim, Eliud, Eleazar, Matan, Jacob, and then Joseph, the husband of Mary, had Jesus, who was born and who was called Christ. See, why? Why do you why do you belabor that? Why do you make this such a point? Because they assumed and they rightly assumed that the Messiah to come would be from the line of David. And Jesus was. See, to a Jew, lineage was everything. You couldn't in that day just claim to be part of a certain tribe in order to live in a certain place or work in a particular field. You had to be able to prove it. You had to know, you had to be able to to prove that you were of that particular tribe or you were of that family. Those records were kept in the temple. They were meticulously guarded by the scribes. Don't you think that this group who had dogged Jesus, wanting to discredit him, wanting to disprove him from being the Messiah, those that kept the records, don't you think that if they could have produced those records and shown that Jesus could not be the Messiah because he's not in the line of David. Don't you think they would have? They would have done it in an instant. But they knew they couldn't. See, Jesus could not just trace his line back to David. He could trace his line all the way back to Abraham. So why? Why, why do you... Why do you belabor that point even further? I belabor that point because there are those today that as I started out and said, there are those that say he was just a man. There's also a group that says he never was a man. There was no historical Jesus. That he really never really existed. He's myth. He's legend. He's the stuff of make believe. The reality is there's more evidence for the life of Jesus Christ than there than there is for most of the historical people that we read about in history books today. Don't ever let anyone tell you that Christians are following someone who never existed. This is not the teachings of the Buddha. This is the following of the real living Historical person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was indeed a man. He was indeed qualified to be the Messiah because he was from the line of David. But that's not all he was. Look at what he says. Jesus here, he says in verse 36, David himself said. He declared in the Holy Spirit. Jesus points out here that this is not just David speaking, but this is God himself leading David to say this. And he says here, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Not only is do some people have this incomplete Christ. But I want you to see in the passage this morning, this ineffable Jesus, the word ineffable means not to be uttered, too great, too complex to be spoken. And this is the way the Jews felt about God. They would not even say they would not speak certain forms of of his name. Out of reverence for God. 
But look at the careful detail that Jesus points out when he quotes Psalm 110.1. Jesus said, David himself in the Holy Spirit said, The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai. David here is saying, God said to God. Adonai is one of the words that they would replace for Yahweh out of reverence. It meant the same thing. It was equal in every way, but it was what they would say. And he says here, David was saying, God said to God. Jesus' point is, if the Messiah, how can the scribes say that he's only the son of David when David himself calls him God? How could he just be his son? You see it? Jesus here, don't ever let anyone tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's ignorant of Scripture. Here, Jesus, without any shadow of a doubt, without any hiding, says the Messiah will not just be a earthly, humanly descendant of David, but he is also God. Jesus' point is that the Spirit led David to understand that the Messiah would be God himself. And this should have been obvious to them. You think about what we have gone through in the book of Mark. What Jesus has done. Shouldn't this have been obvious to them that Jesus was more than a man? Jesus was so much more than a man in their sight. Jesus had done things that only God could do. If God were a man, what would you expect him to do? The one who had created? Would you not expect him to exercise authority over that creation? Can you think of a time where Jesus exercised authority over creation? Can you think of a time where Jesus exercised authority over sickness? Over death? Over the demons themselves? If God were a man, wouldn't you expect him to know what was really true? And what was it Jesus did when he came and taught? He didn't speak like one of the prophets who said, thus says the Lord. Instead, he spoke to them and he said, I say to you. And they marveled at his teaching as one who was untrained, unschooled, according to their standards. And they, they wondered, where does this man get his Training. He clearly speaks truth. Jesus walked on water. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus raised people from the dead. Jesus spoke with truth. This should have been so obvious to them that he was more than a man. But instead they rejected it. Yahweh had told them by the mouth of David that the Messiah would not just be a man. But that he would have equal place sitting at the right hand of God. It's not a literal chair there. It speaks to his being equal with God in every way. Yahweh told them ahead of time that he would put all his enemies under his feet. And while at this point, when Jesus is asking this question, they could not have known what this might have meant. Upon resurrection, 
they would have remembered. The Messiah would have all enemies put under his feet. Philippians 2 verses 6 through 11 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So what's the point? What's Jesus point in all of this? Jesus comes to these. They've asked all of their questions, trying to trip him up, trying to discredit him. And now they have been silenced. And he asked the question because he wants not only to prepare them, but he, I think, in grace and mercy, wants to offer them one more invitation. He says to them, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is only the son of David? David himself calls him God. Jesus' point is that the Messiah would be both fully man and fully God. Now, we've heard that. And when I say that, I look out and, and for me, if this was the first time you were hearing that, if I were to tell you that God came and took on flesh and became a man and lived among us, your jaw should drop. There should be a gasp in the room. Because it is, it is so out of what we would be expecting. Isn't it? That God became a man? Why would he do that? It doesn't square with any of the other religions in the world. Only in Christianity does God step out of heaven, become one like he made, identifies with them, lives a perfectly righteous life goes to the cross that he didn't deserve but they deserved and took their punishment took the wrath of God on their behalf was killed was then placed into the tomb dead three days and then the father in heaven Pleased with the full atoning work of Christ, raises him from the dead. That is scandalous. It should cause us to marvel. And I say to you that the Messiah was both God and man, and you continue to chew your gum. And you look back at me with eyes that say, What else? We've become bored with what God has done for us. I want to show you this is I didn't I didn't expect to see this in the passage this morning. But I want to show you the response to this news. If this is true, if the Messiah, if Jesus Christ is not just historically man, but also full, complete deity. Then it should elicit a certain response, not the one that we often give. Look at the last part of verse 37. 
And the great throng heard him gladly. He's just announced to them. That it was not just. Temporary earthly enemies that the Messiah would come and. Free them from. But he's just announced to them that. Their bigger enemies, sin and death and hell. They would be liberated from those. And the Bible says the great crowd, the great throng, listened to him gladly. They were entertained by it. And I couldn't help but think, how many church services do we come to and sit through and we are just entertained I used to think, as a kid, there is nothing entertaining about going and sitting and listening to preaching. And now I'm a preacher. And we do, don't we? Don't we come and we just are entertained and we go out and we say things like, boy, preacher, you really stepped on my toes this morning. It's not my job to step on your toes. It's my job to show you who this God is. It's not about us getting a dose of anything for the week to get us through. It's not about entertainment. It's not about us whatsoever. Look at the next response. Jesus immediately, he he ignores those that are listening gladly. He He doesn't tell us anything else about them. Verse 38. In his teaching, he said, beware the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes and they like greetings in the marketplaces. They save the best seats for themselves in the synagogues and they, they take the places of honor at the feast. For pretense, for a show, they pray long prayers. And they will receive the greater condemnation. Imagine that. Imagine that there in that crowd that day, there were scribes. Among the crowd. And Jesus says, beware of them. They like to walk around in these robes. They like the best seats for themselves. They pray long prayers so that you will listen to them and you will honor them. Theirs is the greater condemnation. You follow them and they will lead you to hell. Here's what I came to. Is listening to Jesus gladly as entertainment any more soul saving than rejecting that and putting yourself in a place of honor? Both will lead you to hell. You hear me? Both will lead you to hell. If church is something that you do, it will lead you to hell. Just as much as rejecting the deity of Christ and putting yourself in a place of honor. There's an inadequate response and then them listening to him gladly. And there's idolatrous rebellion in them walking around and wanting honor for themselves. And both will send them to hell. But then... 
I couldn't help. I wanted to preach this text separately. But I think it's put there on purpose. Verse 41. He sat down on the opposite side of the treasury and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and she put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The only, the only right response when you come to understand that God has not considered Godhood something to be grasped. But he has left heaven and came and became a man in every single way, has felt the weight of sin without ever having sinned, went to the cross, bore your penalty for your sin against God so that you might be forgiven and brought back to God and live forever with him in heaven. The only proper response is to give him everything you have. It's not necessarily about your money, although that's included. They're quite there, didn't it? It's about your life. It's about giving him everything that you have to live on. That's the only response that's worth giving. He's God who stepped out of heaven, became a man, died for me, was raised from the dead so that I could go where he is, be in right relationship with him, and I'm going to come and listen to him gladly. He's God who stepped out of heaven, came, became a man in every single way, went to the cross that I deserve, was raised from the dead so that I could live and worship him forever. And I want to dethrone him and put myself on a pedestal so that you can look at me and say, look at how holy and spiritual he is. The only response that is the proper response is for all of us. To come before him with everything we have and say, God, nothing else matters. God, I I can't keep doing life how I've been doing life. God, you take everything that I have because I don't deserve anything. I will live on your grace, on your mercy. And I wonder, I sat in my study this week and I thought over this. I wept over this. I thought about you all sitting in the seats that you're sitting in this morning. I don't often try to do it. But I tried to picture faces this week. I tried to picture each of you. And it's kind of sometimes easy to do because you all sit in similar places every week. And I, I don't know the condition of your soul. I don't I don't know. I don't know if you are are like the widow who has come before God and said, God, take everything that I have. God, just give me your mercy. I trust Christ alone. I don't know that. I sat in my study this week and I wept. over looking at your faces and wondering. Is he like the widow? She like the scribe. Are they just listening 
gladly for entertainment? Is it just part of this whole Christian subculture that we live in in the South? If I could, if I could beg you, if I could, if I could do it in you, I would do it in you. If I, could, if I could take your sin and your rebellion out of your life and put in the righteousness of Christ in its place, faith and trust in him alone, I would come and I would do it. I would lock the doors and say, no one's leaving until we do this today. But the reality is, I can't do that. God has, in his own wisdom, set up a system whereby we preach the gospel. And the Spirit moves on hearts. The Spirit wakes us from the dead, draws us to Him. And so today, I'm begging you, if the Spirit of God has spoken to you today, regardless of how long you've been a church member, and how long you've been sitting in that seat, I realize we've only been in this building over a year, but transfer yourself back to the same pew that you used to sit in. Regardless of how long you've been sitting where. If the Spirit of God has shown you today that you are less like the widow and more like the scribe or more like the throng. Then today, the only remedy, the only answer is for you to turn away from yourself, to give all of yourself, broken as it is, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Cast yourself on his mercy. The only hope for a sin sick world is the grace of God. The answer for Coach Sandusky and Penn State and all of the scandal is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But don't don't look at them and say, I'm not that bad. Instead, take a look at yourself and say, compared to God himself who stepped out of heaven. And died in my place. A death that he was never meant to die. I am that bad. And I need his gift. I need his grace. Would you come to Christ today? Let's pray together. God, I pray. God, that in spite of me, God, that you would draw people to yourself. God, that you would speak directly to individuals this morning. In the vernacular that we like to use, God, that you would get a hold of them. God, that you would wake them up. You would call them to yourself. God, I pray today, Lord, that you would indeed cause people in this room to be born again. God, I pray that for those of us who already are born again, God, for those in this room, Lord, would you, God, just remind us today of what a gift it is. God, would you make us so thankful and God, would you... Lord, would you lead us away from trusting in the gospel, but then doing our own thing? Because, God, there really is not, it's impossible 
You can't trust in the gospel and do your own thing. You can't trust in the chair and hold yourself up at the same time. God, I pray, Lord, that you would lead us to you. For your glory, for our good this morning, I pray in Jesus name. Amen.